Hello, Cornerstone. My name is Billy, and today we'll be reading from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 from the NIV. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may, relent, may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The word of God. Good morning. So I, I uh, some of you know this, I like basketball, I like to play basketball, I like to watch basketball, and I, I'm so happy that my wife, May, likes to watch basketball as well. She gets even more excited about it than I do at times when we're watching. And uh, I, I share this because there's a memory I have uh, of one of my times playing basketball that I'm about to share, but um, the reason why I got into basketball is because my two older brothers, I've got they're six and eight years older than I am. They became very, when I was a young in age, my like coaches. I didn't ask them to do this, but they just thought like, wow, we can make our little brother be a good basketball player. So they started to just invest in me ever since I was young. So I played in church leagues when I was in elementary school, and then in middle school I played in some of our town leagues that they had during the summertime. Uh, I didn't get accepted to the middle school team. I got cut, so I wasn't good enough for that. But there's this one time I remember during the summer league, during one game, when, uh, if you know basketball, it was after the first half, the second half was beginning, and there's the jump ball, right? And, and I was a starter, and the ball was tipped to me. And I was so excited, and I, and I just dribbled as fast as I could to the basket. Everybody was screaming and yelling. It was exciting. I did the layup. I got the, I got the basket. And I was like, yeah. And then all my teammates came running to me and said, Jeff, what are you doing? You went to the wrong basket. <laughs> I was so horrified because if you know basketball, you switch baskets you know, in the second half, and I was still thinking first half. And I was so embarrassed. And the reason why I tell you this story is because it's a time in my life I literally went the wrong way. And I did the wrong thing. But graciously, my coach, even though I was ashamed, I was horrified, I was humiliated by what I did, my coach and my teammates came around me and, you know, they gave me a hard time, but jokingly, and they understood and they just encouraged me to continue playing. And, you know, okay, forget about it. We'll just, we got to win and, you know, help us out. And, and I really appreciate that. Well, I'd say this because the Almighty God, who we are here today to worship, who is revealed to us in the scriptures, always gives us and everyone another chance when we sin, when we mess up, when we make mistakes. Uh, it doesn't 
matter who we are or what we've done, he gives us another chance. And this truth we see, um, we observe throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And especially in today's text, in the very first verse of our text today, we see that God gave Jonah another chance. And it starts saying, God gave, I mean, sorry, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, this is the Jonah that ran away when the word came to him the first time. He ran away the opposite direction in disobedience. This is the Jonah that when there was a great storm, he was sleeping because he really didn't care. And then when they, they threw him over the side, he would rather, as he suggested to them, die than obey the word of the Lord. And this is the Jonah that would... All like this rebellion, and yet God had mercy on him when he was thrown over the, as we know in the story up to this point, that he sent this great fish to save Jonah from drowning. And he swallowed Jonah, crazy story, right? And then, and it was, he, in his grace and mercy, gave Jonah time to think about the situation in the belly of this fish. And we saw last week in chapter 2 how in the belly of the fish, Jonah came to his senses with thanksgiving and gratefulness, and he acknowledged that salvation comes from the Lord. Because what are the chances of a great fish first swallowing you and then you still living while you're slowly being digested? You know, and having time to think about this. Um, that's a miracle. So chapter 2 ended with this statement. And the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Just try to imagine that experience. You know, it's funny here. Even in the Hebrew text, it's kind of like this satire humor because God gave him another chance, but this word of, for vomit in the Hebrew is yacha or yacha. It sounds like you're throwing up. Well, at least when I throw up, maybe, but... You might sound a little differently. I don't know. Well, we don't need to talk about that. But, you know, it's just even there, it's just like he, ha, Jonah onto dry land. It's, it's really over the top. And as we saw with Pastor Paul when he introduced this book, Jonah, in the first chapter, that this book is known to be full of satire, meaning that there's a lot of stuff in this book that seems to be over the top, extreme, unbelievable, you know, and, and here's just another example of that, like, and there he is. He's on dry land. How can a fish vomit you onto dry land? Wouldn't it have to kind of swim up onto the beach? Or maybe he just vomited him out near dry land, so by the time Jonah got to the coast, he was at least washed off. I don't know. You know, how does it feel to be partially digested? You know, I, Maybe be white like me, you know, <laughs> bleached, you know. Who knows? It's just so over the top. It's crazy, right? Well, then the story takes a new turn, we see, in verses 3 and 4. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a large city, a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, the new turn in the story here that we see is that Jonah reluctantly obeyed the Lord. 
He reluctantly obeyed the Lord. When, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time, he passionately disobeyed the Lord. And now Jonah obeyed, simply meaning we, we know he obeyed because he went to Nineveh, right? That's what the Lord told him to do, go to Nineveh. And so he actually went to Nineveh. And it was a really long journey. It's almost about 500 miles to go from Israel to Nineveh. I see the little red circle there. That's where Nineveh is. The city of Nineveh was a very large city from ancient standards. It was nestled on the east side of the Tigris River. And during the time of Jonah, the Assyrian Empire was growing, as you can see the shaded area is where they had influence uh, around that period of time. And they were the dominant power and were building their empire by conquering neighboring nations as they grew. Uh, and the city now is still there. Its ruins were still there. So you can go there and see the ancient ruins of Nineveh. Nineveh became the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was known to, as the cruelest, the vilest, the most powerful, and most idolatrous uh, empires in the world at that time. For example, let me give you a couple examples of how bad or how brutal the Assyrians were. They would hold their victims when they caught them in war down and they would reach into their mouths and rip out their tongues. They would skin their victims alive. While you were alive, they would rip off your skin. And here's some carvings of this being done. Uh, they put ring-like hooks into people's lips and then they would put you on a leash and lead you around like an animal, like we do with dogs and cats. They would build pyramids of human heads and outside the city that they conquered. They would just tuck the heads of all of us and put them in this nice pyramid for their victory dance. Uh, they impaled people on stakes. They often blinded their captives. They would just poke their eyes out. The cruelty was known for the Assyrians worldwide because of how brutal they were with their, uh, the people that they conquered. And the Jews knew this, and Jonah knew this, because they were kind of neighbors, and they hated the Assyrians, the Ninevites. They hated them. And they could be you know, condemned forever as far as Jonah was concerned. He wanted God's judgment to fall on them because they deserved it. And that's why he ran away the first time, right? He had no desire to see these people turn from their sin. And he wanted the Assyrians to receive God's judgment, interestingly, that he was proclaiming now to them. So we sense Jonah's reluctant obedience uh, when we hear the message he proclaimed, this simple message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, in the Hebrew, this is only five words. A five-word sermon. I've already broken that, right? I've gone more than five words. In English, in the NIV, it's an eight-word sermon. Pretty short, to, direct to the point. But what is missing in this message, right? What is missing? Who will overthrow Nineveh? Uh, why will they be overthrown? Can the Assyrians do anything about this? Uh, and Jonah is coming and representing what God when he says this, right? None of that's in there. Just 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Now, there's some different theories here, but be, this is very fishy, isn't it? No pun intended, right? Uh, what does is, what is this mean? Why is it such a short, 
to-the-point message. Well, this, this, these different scholarly theories, one is that it's just part of the satire, this extreme comic element that, you know, so he actually said more. This is just a summary of what he said. Uh, that's one. Two is that Jonah is engaging in a bit of prophetic sabotage. He's giving as little information as he can so that they will still receive God's judgment, even though he's, quote, obeying the Lord. So he's like a prophetic saboteur. You know, he's doing his job, but hoping that they will not repent, and they will still receive God's judgment. Now, the author of Jonah doesn't make clear the intention of this message, really. Uh, And I tend to lean toward this second theory of prophetic sabotage because it seems to fit with Jonah's character up to this point, right? (laughs) Uh, And we, we can see even evidence of this in the last chapter that Nathan so aptly brought out in his message last week where if you look at the prayer, even though he comes to realize that God is the Lord of salvation, it's, you know, salvation is through the Lord, but there's nowhere in that prayer of any remorse or confession of his disobedience of what got him to that point. None, right? And so we can see he was just simply thankful and grateful for the Lord saving his life. But he's not very grateful or thankful for that the Lord may save the Ninevites. No, not at all. So Jonah had traveled over 500 miles to proclaim this short message of judgment. Remember what God said in the first chapter when he told Jonah first the word of the Lord came to him the first time? This is what God said. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. It's interesting, though. Even though Jonah was like a horrible prophet, he's the worst example of a prophet of God, right? He's a hypocrite, really. But the people believed God's message of judgment, right? They they repented. And, And he was really effective as a prophet, even though he was horrible as an example as a prophet. Because even in chapter one, you remember? He was sleeping, and then they were like, trying to figure out. He didn't say anything. The lots fell to him, and then finally he said, oh, okay, throw me overboard, and the, you know, the Lord will calm the, the sea, right? But so they, they throw him overboard, and what happened to those men on the ship? They believed. They worshiped God. They, they converted. They were like, whoa, Jonah's God is the biggest, powerfulest God, right? And then Jonah comes to the Ninevites. He preaches his five-word sermon, and the whole city repents, He's so effective, but he's horrible, and he's effective. And so the Ninevites repented. You know, um, the Ninevites repented, yes. So his short message worked. You know, maybe I should try to craft, or Paul or Nathan and whoever else preaches, we try to, oh, the other Paul, (laughs) a five-word sermon and see how effective it is. What do you guys, you guys up for that? (laughs) yeah the people of Nineveh believed this message of judgment and they fasted and they put on sackcloth which is this really uncomfortable rough kind of cloth and this really was simply an expression of their heart their confession their their repentance um, and shown in their actions what's interesting today we often understand belief as an intellectual consent. Yeah, I believe that. But the scriptures define belief as shown through actions. 
They don't even have this concept of like, yeah, yeah, I, I believe that. No, it's always shown through action. Today, we often believe something, but we don't necessarily act on it. So in the scriptural sense, then we don't really believe it. But real belief moves people to action. The evidence of who we truly follow as Lord is shown through our actions in the sense of a real belief that the scriptures ask for. So whenever we say or do something that hurts someone or is wrong or dishonors the Lord, it springs from a, an area in our heart of unbelief because we are disobeying or dishonoring the Lord we follow. For example, there's this story illustrates this, this of a church board member, okay? He just went to a church board meeting and he's on his way home and he gets stuck in this traffic. So he's sitting there in standstill traffic. But even though the traffic stands still, it's, nobody's moving, the car behind him keeps honking. Keeps honking at him. And he's getting more and more frustrated. And so the board member, not being led by the Spirit, gets out of his car, walks back to that car, and had the, open, the driver had the open window, and he hits the person in the face. And then he's walking back to his car, and he looks down and he sees on his bumper sticker... Honk if you love Jesus. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> See, our actions reveal what we truly believe in and what, who we follow. Do we follow Jesus as Lord? Well, the confession of sin, the repentance of that sin, turning away from it, should be a common habit of ours if we follow the Lord God who forgave us and gives us the ability and the spirit of himself in us to change. It should be a habit of us, a common habit, among not only individually, but with the Lord, but us as a community, practicing it with one another. It's not that we never sin, but when we do, we admit it, and we then seek to do what is right because of the Lord God. Now, the Assyrian king's response to Jonah's message was to put on sackcloth himself and to sit in the dust, which is interesting. And the most powerful man in the world in that area, and he responds very similarly. But he makes this decree to the people of Nineveh, who are already pretty much doing this, but he says that they must, in a sense, he's forcing everyone to, to do the same as he is doing. And, um, and even interesting over the top is the animals can't eat either. And they must wear sackcloth too. It's just kind of, wow, this is crazy. You know, it's another over-the-top thing here. And, uh, and then he asked the people to urgently call on God to give up their evil and violent ways. Now, the king of Assyria in this part in verse 8 and verse 9 uses the same Hebrew word here. Give up, for, give up their evil ways and turn from his fierce anger. So one is referring to the people giving up their evil ways, and the other is referring to the Lord God turning from his fierce anger. And it's the same Hebrew word, which carries this image of like walking in one direction, and then a judgment's made saying, hey, Jeff, you're going in the wrong direction. And then I go, oh, okay. So then I just turn and I go in another direction. And it's this turning from this, and this is the image of this Hebrew word in meaning repentance. It's this image of repentance. Uh, it's like an about face in the military. You know, about face, and they turn around, and they go the other direction. That's the image here. And because life is a journey, and, and the Word of God reveals to us when we're going in the wrong direction. And then we repent, meaning we acknowledge, yeah, I'm going in the wrong direction. And then repentance means we turn away from the direction we were going. 
and we follow the Lord Jesus then. So the Assyrian king was saying for his people, the people of Nineveh, to change their ways, to turn from their evil ways. And then maybe the Lord God would not bring destruction on Nineveh. So here, we may wrestle with this issue of God being angry and showing judgment and punishment for sin. And then on the other hand, a God of a second chance. He gives us another chance. He shows grace and forgiveness. It's, it's like these two attributes of divine judgment and divine grace. God is judge. God is a God of another chance. And we struggle with how do we balance these two? God is judge. God is love. How do we balance these two? It's like we like to pick one and forget the other, and we don't know how to talk about these attributes together many times. Sometimes we think they're the opposites of each other, but they're not. Because if we are, if are, what are we really saying is that God, a loving God, would not condemn and judge the evil practices of humankind. Is that what we're really saying? If we think about it, why is the world so messed up? Well, it's because of people, sinful people. People are the reason. If God's response is it's okay. People will be people. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's not a loving God, right? You know, apathy is not caring enough to do something about it. That's apathy. That's the opposite of love. So, for example, if there are some kids we see bullying another kid, and we say, ah, oh, kids will be kids. It's okay. Is that a loving thing to do? No, not at all. That's the apathetic, apathy, uh, apathetic thing to do, right? You're just like, yeah, I don't really care. This is their problem. And, but the loving thing to do, and if we really love the kids that we see involved in this situation, we will go to them and make sure they understand what, what they're doing is wrong. And in that process of gu- providing guidance and even maybe punishing the kids who are bullying the other, that is part of showing the love of, for them, their life going forward. It's, it's all part of the love and calling out what's wrong as wrong and even providing punishment as well. So for God to love people who are made in his image, he will make judgment very clear of what is right and wrong. And if we want a world where there is justice, we absolutely need a God who is of love because he loves us enough to show us what is right and wrong. If we do not believe in a God of judgment, then there is no hope for this world, none at all. And whoever is the strongest will determine what the rules are or the majority will determine what is right and wrong. Uh, and and it just be changing. It's, it's crazy. It's basically whoever has the most power and influence. You know, it's funny. When the spotlight of God's justice shines on us, we often get defensive, don't we? Like, oh, <laughs> You know, and, and we conveniently excuse our own sinfulness. We justify it. We excuse it. We make it less than it is. Uh, we believe that, you know, for example, it's good to be generous and it's good to forgive. But then when we look at our lives and what we spend all our resources on, is it mostly predominantly on ourselves and not on others? Or if we look at our relationships, is there any relationships that are broken and we absolutely will not forgive that person because of the way they hurt us? 
when the judgment comes to us, we try to excuse it, wiggle out of it. But we're glad to judge others or have God judge them. Sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Well, remember what Jesus taught his followers, saying some pretty hard words there? For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. But there is good news, brothers and sisters, because we see in Jonah chapter 3 at the end with the truth that God gives us another chance. Listen to how the chapter ends. When God saw that they did and what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God gave the people of Nineveh another chance when they repented of their wicked ways and turned to him in belief. Now, this was short-lived because if you look at history, Nineveh got nailed because they didn't really <laughs> change their ways for very long. No, but here, destruction did not come in the 40 days that Jonah was saying it would come in, and we will see that in, in chapter 4. So despite Jonah's rebellion and disobedience, God gave him a second chance. And despite all the wickedness of the Ninevites and the Assyrians, God gave them another chance. It's amazing. When they repented of their evil ways, he showed grace to them, withholding judgment. Jesus came for this purpose. He made this possible then, and he makes it possible for us and each of us now. He took the punishment that our sins and our sinfulness deserves on himself because of why? Because of love. He loves us. You see, the judgment and love go together. He paid the penalty so now that we are free from our slavery to just doing what's wrong, our slavery to sin. And by this, this act of grace that he has bestowed on all of mankind, it only applies if we accept this gift of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done for you and me and for all people. Nothing we have done will prevent God from giving us another chance to turn to him and humbly admit our wrongs and follow him as Lord. Nothing can prevent us or exclude us from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a story that illustrates this well. And it's from this book called uh, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior by Max Lucado. And so I'm going to tell you this story that comes right from this book. Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, this girl Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home, having only a pallet on the floor, it's like a, a mat, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of having a better life in the city. And one morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. And knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria, the mom, hurried, hurriedly packed to go find her. And on the way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photo booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures for, of herself. And with her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus, the Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. 
And knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. And she went to them all. And at each place, she left her picture, taped to the bathroom mirror, pinned to the, the bulletin board on a hotel, or, or uh, stuck to the phone booth on the corner of a street. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. And it wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. And the weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. Well, it was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with the youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade those countless beds for her secure little pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away now. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there in the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo, and written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did, and she went home. No matter how we have messed up, no matter how we have sinned, made mistakes, no matter how deeply you've hurt other people or dishonored the Lord God, he is still saying it doesn't matter. Just come, turn away from those things and turn toward me. Come home and you will be accepted and forgiven. God gives us another chance brothers and sisters. He wants us to follow him because he is the only real abundant life. Everything else is a lie and it's temporary and it's really a, a vapor, a mist. The evil one speaks to us in, while in the same time opposing this thinking that we are hopeless, that we will never change. This is just the way I am, uh, that we are messed up, we're worthless. And these are all lies from the pit of hell. They're not the truth, but Jesus gives us another chance, and he calls us to turn back to him because he's already forgiven you and me once and for all on the cross. He just wants you to follow him, the, the way, the truth, and the life. And that is the message of Jonah chapter 3. Let's pray. Lord, when we think of the tremendous grace and mercy that you show us, we fall far short of treating others in a similar way. We are so much like Jonah. We want others to be judged. We want others to be punished. And yet, when it comes to us, we are blind to our own sinfulness and also deserving punishment and judgment. We pray, Lord, that this truth, that you forgive us as you do others, and that the simple hope that you have and call that you have on our lives is to just follow you as Lord and as Savior. We pray that this tremendous and profound truth, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, pierces our hearts and minds and becomes the reason and the, the hope that we have in this life 
and also the hope we have in the life to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.